0: We had the intersection of three markets, so art, logistics, and tech. These three markets have gone through significant challenges over the past two, three years. So I think started with COVID. For us, what has been difficult is in the beginning, the art market could not sell. That's primarily a brick and mortar industry before they were able to move all of the auctions, all of the sales online.
1: You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. One today we're going to be covering a topic that we have never covered on this podcast before the intersection of technology and the art world the art world is something that i find absolutely a black box and to unpack that and shed some light into it we have eduard founder of convalio welcome
0: thank you very much for having me
1: so edward I, I think I'm probably not the only one listening to this that has no idea about the dark sides of the art world. To some extent, I have the romanticized view of a painter or somebody who's built some sort of art portfolio. But it sounds like it doesn't end there. It sounds like there is quite a bit of the value chain that artist has to engage with. Everything from the maybe an agent to maybe a gallery. And then somebody needs to get that artwork to the customer. Who is that customer? How do they discover it? Do you want to just help us for us that are not from this world to understand that entire value chain before we start talking about the technology that underpins it?
0: First thing, um, so as you said, the art market is a black box to most. And I think it's a black box also because there are, I think to start, like it's very much kind of an elite market, right? Like most of the people that buy arts usually have obviously quite a lot of money and it's kind of a very small circle. We tend to say that um, when you enter into a gallery, you can have a little bit of fear. And so I think that's kind of start with that. And with that is also all the intricacies within the market as to what do you buy? How does it get priced? And it's really because every artwork is unique. There is also a unique price to it. And so how is that getting defined? And so that whole dynamic is pretty hard to understand. So what I can do is maybe working you through the journey of a collector. And so as a collector, typically when you enter into an art gallery, you will see different kinds of artworks, right? You can have what we call primary artworks so like fresh paintings that just got created by the artist. And then you also have what we call the secondary market, right? So like artworks that have been sold and bought again and sold again and so on and so on, right? And typically a Picasso would be a secondary market. And so as you enter that, right? Like you will have vastly different experiences if you buy a primary artwork or a secondary one. The secondary one, you start to get quite some data in the market about, at what price that artist has sold in the past, and and you have solutions that help you track that price. When it comes to the primary market, is essentially hype and FOMO. You can see something pretty amazing, and it got bought by like a couple of pretty famous collectors that put them into like big private collections. And then that artist that started to sell through let's say a relatively small gallery ends up I don't know selling at like a really fancy one like Gagosian, and then obviously the price inflates. And so having a real benchmark, which can really help you make an informed decision. It's obviously significantly more difficult. And then, so obviously we'll have the sales associate in the gallery explain you everything about the artist. And at some point, either you have enough data to take a decision by yourself, or you can also go through an art advisory firm that will tell you, well, this is more or less a good investment. Obviously, besides the money, like you need to like what you buy. I think that's the, the way I see it. Some people, Uh, we'll do that only as an investment, but I think most people do that for the love of the art. And I think that's what really matters. And then I think for the rest of the experience, obviously, once you you buy the artwork, it needs to be shipped. And so that's obviously where we intervene. It can be shipped to one's home. It can be shipped to a freeport where some people will store some art. So it can be uh, stored at a normal storage facility. And then the whole cycle starts again, right? So at some point, the collector will say, well, I've had enough of that painting and I want to sell it again. So then they can sell it again into a gallery or it can go through the auction houses. And then obviously when it goes through the auction houses, that's a whole different board game where the artwork will be put within kind of a larger auction and where everybody's going to bid on. And typically this kind of data become available very quickly. So then that kind of feeds into the ability as a collector to also know what is the price you're willing to put on an artwork that you, you're looking at buying. Right? Essentially, the way you can see it is the art market is primarily kind of a fixed inventory that changes hand quite a lot. And then you have a, a part also of the primary market that comes into that and kind of feeds into a much larger inventory over time.
1: Yeah, okay. So it's a good it's a good sort of primer on this the whole industry. I mean, we did really cover anything uh, artists related, but I, I perhaps it, oh. it it goes down a different rabbit hole there. But if you take that map that you just painted for us, and I know that we're going to talk shortly about what your company does, but if we just unpack the whole industry for a second, where has tech really changed the art industry in the last 20 years? Where have you seen it peppered? I mean, for one, it's online auction houses or online marketplaces, right? Where else has it really made an impact? And let's exclude NFTs for now, because I, I think that's borderline artwork. Uh, but, you know, it's a separate separate story. might get me uh, some NFT enemies there, but just to separate out the two different types of art.
0: Um, sure thing, obviously, as you mentioned, I
1: mean, marketplace and online
0: auctions I still quite a thing, right? Like so we consider it's something that's a given, but it's really arrived in the art market during COVID, right? Like before, essentially the older generation within the auction houses did not want to list anything for online auctions uh, because they found that the experience that was offered by the client was not the same. So it's still something that's very recent, right? And and the market is only arriving within that kind of e-commerce era. So I think that's still quite relevant. Now that being said, there are, there are some technologies that have been used within the art market that actually make quite a lot of sense. And that's primarily for me around data. So what I was mentioning about the fact that the art market is super opaque and it's really hard to take a good decision as to what you're going to, to buy, like making sure you don't buy at the price, which is too high. Now we start to see quite some platforms, primarily also through like Artnet, which launched a protocol Artnet database, where that kind of regroup a lot of these um, different data points. And that helps people take significantly better decision-making. Uh, that was not existing before. And essentially what these guys had to do was to digitize hundreds of thousands of catalogs of artworks that got sold over the past 20, 30 years, which has been like a massive undertaking. And now you see with as more on auctions are uh, coming online, it's easier to gather these data. So I think that's for me, that's kind of one of the primary change within the art market on the collector side. Now more on the gallery side there are quite some software that got developed over the past 20 years that are helping the art galleries to manage their own businesses. And so there are some essentially very verticalized ERPs that help galleries kind of managing whatever's coming in, whatever's coming out, managing the inventory, managing payment, and so on and so on. And that's a relatively early days for that because historically most of the communication between the collector and the gallery is done via email. There is very much a human touch to, to selling in the art market and so kind of bringing that to a level of interaction which is closer to what you will have like at an Amazon or at a Best Buy, for example, when you go into the US um, is kind of moving towards that. So I would tend to say these are the two primary ones. Obviously, you have all the things around blockchain and, and what it can bring to the art market and the fact that you can have that to master authentication. I think it is something that's important. But I don't think it's critical. I don't think the art market is at the stage where like blockchain is a game changer in my opinion. So we hear a lot about it in the art market. I just don't think that's really where where the art market should focus on right now.
1: Yeah, no fair enough. a few exceptions. Fair enough. And I think where I wanted to dig into is really the why you started Convalio. Because if I understand what you guys do, it sounds like you pick the hardest of all the parts of the value chain. You walk through inventory management, you talked about pricing, you talked about marketplaces. You know, there's all these other elements that are probably not, there's no winner yet in, in some of them. And yet you chose to pick the the hardest one. So walk us through the story of why Convalio. Why did you pick the hardest one? And how do you get your customers to trust you? Because not only did you pick the hardest one from a labor point of view, but also the hardest one where like, if you make a mistake, you probably kind of screwed. So walk, yeah. walk us through that.
0: Um, I think it's by mistake we <laughs> disappear. Um, no, so, so the, the story is, uh, I mean, is honestly, it's very much linked to the story I have with my co-founder, um, Clément. So we, we both really started, I mean, our real first job was at Rocket Internet, um, in Berlin where we primarily did operations. So, uh, we were in the same team and we got along super well. And at some point we're like, we need to build a company together. And so without going through all the, the different steps, we started the first company that we crashed. And then after that, I started to build a a marketplace that was selling design items online. And the deal when I started to to build that stuff up was, okay, let's see whether that takes on. And if that takes on, then Clement would join me, we'd continue together. And so the deal we did was I started to develop that marketplace and he went to work for um, another marketplace that was selling antiques online. And we're primarily both still doing operations. And we both very much struggling with shipping, right? Because it's... Like we had to ship big stuff that are valuable, super fragile. And so most of the time we had to go through our transport companies that are super expensive because you don't have that many, super kind of brick and mortar. It was impossible for us to have a shipping quote within less than 48 hours. And most of the time that would go up to five days. And the same guys could do a pickup in a certain area, but not in another. So you have to deal with like hundreds of different shipping providers. And it was just a bloody nightmare. And so after... I don't know, we're talking every day for months. And at some point we're like, maybe the bigger opportunity is actually building a final shipping company that works. And so that's when we started to think about building a one-stop shop from which anyone can get a shipping price instantly or almost instantly in most cases that is competitive and with a large geographical scope. So that's kind of like the basis of the idea. Now on building trust, honestly, we, we've done that progressively, right? So when we started, we are primarily working with, let's say, Furniture brands are doing some really nice furnitures. We're working with antique dealers. And so the maximum at the time, the maximum commercial value we would ship for an object would be, I think, max 15000 um, And if you would go above 15000 because we had no money, we're like, well, are we sure we want to do that? Because if we break that stuff, then we have no money left on the company. right? So so that was kind of that level in, in the really beginning. Um, then what happened is we started to do a lot of work with antique dealers in London, in Paris, and in Italy. And at some point, we got contacted by First which is like this large marketplace for antiques in the US. And they are like, okay, we see our dealers are using you guys to ship from Europe to the US. Do you think we could extend the partnership and you would work directly with us? And so on and so on. And so that's what we started to do. And from then on, we started to increase the commercial value of what we were shipping. And we started to work with, let's say, fancier antique dealers. And after a while, we got an intro to Christie's in France. And that's when we really started to do art, right? So they started to give us initially artworks that were below 100k in value. And so that was a fairly similar value chain from what we were doing in the past. And then progressively, we went on from working with Christie's, with the other large auction houses to, let's say, like, I mean, we went from like tier three galleries to tier two galleries to tier one galleries. And then we obviously adapted our offering to make sure that we could cater for, for these different needs. But this has been really honestly quite progressive. We've been through that journey. I think to get to where we are now, like where we really start to do the top end of the market, it really took us six years, right? And every year we'd see that we would improve and start to ship more and more premium outwards.
1: Yeah, I want to unpack some of that. You know, you've done a great job of narrating how it happened organically and over time and incrementally. But, you know, I think when you were talking about the 15,000 limit, I think new companies always have the risk of, taking on too much uh, responsibility too soon. And I just want to get a sense for like, tell us a story of the first mistake or the first thing that went wrong in that early journey and how you dealt with it. Yeah.
0: So the first one, I think, was like our fifth shipment. I think it was from Paris to Switzerland, if I remember well. And we had a transport company and we told them why, like, you know, like, don't forget to stop at customs, right? Because we need to do the custom declaration. And um, and (laughs) the guy did not stop. And then you called us, you're like, guys, amazing. There was no one at the customs, so I didn't have to pay any tax. so it's going to be better for your clients, But which obviously is a fraud, right? And then when you talk to your clients, it's like, wow, but I need the paperwork to prove that I imported it correctly. Because if the, that person wants to sell it again, then other, I mean, otherwise you screwed up. We were scared as hell uh, because if we get caught, this is massive fines. I mean, the company's done. And when you're done on the fifth shipment, that was pretty intense. So in the end, what we realized is we could actually... We went to the Swiss authorities and we told them, well, listen, there's been a problem. Can we actually manage the imports? And so we managed to figure that one out because in, in Switzerland, you can do these kind of things. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty scary one. And I mean, obviously, we didn't really know what we were doing back then. So we had very, I mean, we did operations, we did logistics, but never at that scale, never with these kind of values. So yeah, that was a pretty scary moment. You too, you have like maybe 30k on your bank account max. That means like was essentially the, the company would go bankrupt in seconds. So...
1: Yeah. Which brings up a very good point, which is how do you source local partners or source, you know, these companies that do stuff? And then how do you train? I don't know if you call them managers or you call them associates or affiliates. Your company really is an aggregation of a lot of these people that you work with that are part of that value chain, but they may not necessarily be your employees. They might be just local last mile or, or local links. Yeah. How do you manage that from a quality point of view? How do you get them, everyone at the same level and, and manage to have this experience for the customer?
0: It's a very interesting question. Like That touches upon, I think, two things that are really important for us, right? Like, obviously, the first one is supply selection. And the second point is, um, is manager training. And so to start on the first one, if we go through a shipment journey, when we have to do a shipment, we would, let's say, go to the gallery. I mean, we would send one of our partners to go to the gallery. They would pick up the artwork. Then they would bring it to a specialized packaging center. Then the artwork gets put into made-on-measure crates. Then you have to manage the custom, export customs, then the freight, then the import custom, then the last mile delivery and potentially the an installation. And so in some instances, you can have as many suppliers as you have steps, right? So you can end up with eight different people that are working on the shipment and so obviously supplier selection is is super important we've obviously grew that over time but usually the the way that works is we start by asking all of our contacts if we're looking for a specific supplier if they know anyone that i don't know could do pickups in texas what is the kind of local delivery company that they're using because we know we can use these guys to do to the pickups and so we use a lot of reference i mean we ask for reference about that and then we will test them right so we give them low value artworks, we see how the, the whole experience is going. And so typically we would call the gallery afterwards to, to know like, okay, how was the pickup? We'd call the creating center afterwards. We're like, how was the delivery? Did the guy do the condition report right? And so on and so on. And so we start with, let's say, three shipments up to a certain amount. Then we give them five shipments up to another one, then 10 to another one. And then after a while, if they're good enough, then we start to really deliver volumes. But we never give volume straight away. It's not possible. It's too risky for us. So that's kind of the, the way we manage that. We took us a lot of time to get that right also because you cannot use like it does not make sense to take like a super super premium company to pick up like a i don't know a a 10k painting like obviously a 10k painting is a lot of money for most people but in the art market is fairly limited so you need to make sure that you cater the right suppliers to the right artwork right and to do that we actually completely splitted our offering so we have one offering that we call essential which is let's say more budget conscious option Uh, where it's like trained technicians that we've been working with for a long time. They can manage up to, let's say, 100K uh, in value, which is non-fragile. And then if something is fragile or really fine-out or high-value, then it goes within what we call our fine-out offering, where it's like only like essentially top-notch technicians over the entire value chain. So that's kind of the the way way we manage that. And we have like a team that is dedicated to that. We have MBRs with all of our suppliers. Then the other element that we touched upon was more around manager training right which i think is more linked to company growth so obviously we, we grew really quickly in the past six years right so as for any startup is well you have young managers um and, you know, i mean like let's say young very good individual contributors they become managers then you start to hire people from the outside and they have different management principles and so it's like how do you bring everybody to the same level and like the same understanding as to what do you expect of, of a manager and obviously for us Primarily in operation, it's super important because if we do a mistake, as you mentioned, that could kill the company, right? Like when you transport a 10 million worth painting, you cannot screw this one up. Obviously you have insurance and so on and so on, but the, the damage on the brand would be so massive. I don't really know if you can manage to recover from that. And so we've put in place, like I, I, I wrote like a really long management training and, and we kind of like going through that. Um, Actually also right now, where every two weeks I sit down with our managers, one hour, like in total for let's say close to five hours a week every two weeks Um, and then we kind of go through like certain chapters of the book that i prepared and then we finish that with three days of manager training all together and we kind of trying to take what we tried to do with my co-founder was to think about okay what are all the lessons that we learned all the mistakes we've made that we don't want our managers to make and how can we train them for that and so we prepared that kind of very big document and going through that together so sorry it was a bit long but
1: yeah no I mean it when it comes to your employees, it sounds like you were very much precise about what you think makes good practices, and you educate them. But what it comes to your suppliers, what I heard was that you have this incremental approach of deducing who's high quality, who isn't, and then you also have divisions within your product segmentation. So yeah. you have, you know, the super high end versus the medium end versus the low end. Well, maybe there's no low end, but it's just that value chain delivery is for a higher end customer versus a medium end customer. And it'll probably cheaper as well, right? But that that brings up another interesting question, which is these people weren't unemployed before, right? These suppliers that are like high tier, you referred to them as super uh, experienced technicians. Those people were not unemployed before. They probably were working for your competition in some capacity, right? And so how do you come as a startup to disrupt a, a working value chain that is employed by, probably people who've had generations of employing these people with a promise of, you know, a series A, Series B funded company. How do you get people, not for the customer, but how do you get the supply chain of of labor to trust you?
0: It's a very good question. It's less complicated than one would think, right? I think you, you have different cases, but the bottom line is everybody wants more business. And the way we approach our relationship is we try not to work with too many suppliers, like within one geography. Let's say in New York we have three very good suppliers that we work with we give them work based on the typology of artworks that that arrive and we try to really create a partnership and we're like well you know you're really good for that segment of the market if we work together if you respect our processes we're going to to shoot at you quite a lot of volumes right and so in quite some instances in like when we start to work with a supplier we actually really start to give them a lot of volume and it's steady volumes right so they know that by working with us, they will have a steady kind of revenue stream that's coming in, and so obviously that puts us in a situation where we like, well, you know, we give you a lot of volume. We kind of create kind of that base that can allow you in, in a lot of cases to get the company running, and then whatever you you take on top, you know, it's pure profit. And so what we do is we build that partnership with them, we obviously negotiate better prices, and then that's obviously savings that we pass on to our collectors. So so that's the way we create it. Now you know after six years. We know most of these suppliers very well. Um, and so it's like the kind of part of the extended family to a certain extent. Like I was in New York um, twice over the past two months. And every time I go, I would meet at least like one or two suppliers. Um, and so that that relationship with the suppliers is, is super important.
1: It sounds like the answer is pay them well and treat them well.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's as basic as that. Uh, as basic
1: as that. Fair enough. Um, well, if we, if we look at about the industry that you're in, there's an overall... A backdrop of the macro environment we're in. I, I'm just curious how it's affecting. You. I mean, first of all, we're in a world now where a lot of industries are suffering because of cost of living crisis, and and the art world seems to be somewhat impervious to that because of its clientele. But maybe walk us through a little bit of like how the world has been affecting you. Everything from oil prices might change the pricing of your deliveries and and how do you factor that in how do you factor all these things externalities into to to the cost of shipping and the risk you know i'm I'm assuming i have no idea where your art goes to but i'm assuming it probably ends up in some places where you might not want to take the sort of geo risk so walk us through how the last two three years of challenges COVID, ukraine everything that's going on how is that affecting you
0: uh i was tough (laughs) i think that's it That's fair to say. Um, Yeah, it's been it's been a challenging couple of years, right? And I think uh, we can take that by looking at three perspectives, right? Like we we had the intersection of three markets, right? So obviously, art, logistics, and tech, and these three markets have gone through significant challenges over the past two three years. So I think started with COVID. For us, what has been difficult is, you know, in the beginning, the art market could not sell. And like that's primarily a brick and mortar industry before they were able to move all of the auctions, all of the sales online, only a fraction of the transaction were happening online. So, you know, we had three months and a half when nothing happened and we're like, okay, do we need to do a layoff? That was literally something that we, we were considering. And after a while, I don't know, within a couple of weeks, the whole market moved online and then it kind of exploded so then we we were faced with another problem, which is, okay, now the size of the team is too small, right? So like you start to have overworked colleagues and it's like, how do you manage all that inbound? And then obviously on the other side, you have your investors saying, wow, guys, this is amazing. Like we need to keep the ball rolling. Like you need to hire people more. I mean, you need to hire quicker and you need to train them faster and, and so on and so on, right? And trying to do that while keeping a steady quality is also not super, super easy. So that has been like kind of one of the challenges that we had to go through like from a growth perspective. Now, kind of more recently, what has been really painful was the war in ukraine right so i mean war in ukraine and kind of the exit of covid right so at the end of covid everybody had kind of like a lot of cash and so like people started to buy a lot of things and that put a lot of pressure on supply chain at the same time you had the war in ukraine starting where the cost of oil skyrocketed and so our own cost base for a big part of value chain increased by close to 40 percent and so when you get to that level of increase you're like What are we supposed to do, you know? Do we put that on clients? Do we take the hit ourselves? But if we take the hit ourselves, then your burn increases. So what do you want to do? You need to let let people go. Obviously, it reduces growth if you increase prices too much, right? So it took us a while. It really took us a while to kind of of figure that one out. What we tried to do was to balance that price increase. And so put a bit on our clients because we're not able to absorb it. And then part of that was on us as well. So, you know, we were in kind of like that in-between situation, which was not super healthy to be transparent. It was kind of pretty hard to navigate. And at the same time, we entered that kind of like post craziness tech fundraising period where it's not so easy to raise anymore, right? So like you need to actually drive the company to profitability. And so you have all of these different external factors that that are hitting you. And so what we decided to do ultimately was kind of what I was mentioning before. Um, I mean, two things happened first. Markets are kind of going back to normal, right? So like Fed prices are going back to normal. And so we were able to decrease our rates and gain competitivity again and generate growth. And we did that also kind of one step further, which was like that split offering, like essential and finance, and making sure that what we offer to our clients is like super targeted to what they want, right? So they pay the right price for the right service as to what they expect. And, and that really helped us. And so that, that these two elements of market going back to normal and that kind of split offering allowed us to be able to start to grow again and to actually put us on a path to profitability. So like the target for us is next year. Like we did our Series B in, in, in March twenty two. And for us, the idea is like at the end of the first semester next year, we need to start to see cash flow positive months and and progressively go towards profitability with still quite a lot of cash in the bank. So if something else was to happen, I mean, we went through like COVID and the war in Ukraine and now the war between the Hamas and Israel, which I think can also at some point have some impact, like based on how it's going to evolve. We need to get ready, and so the decision we took was we need to have the company to profitability. We need to have very sane unit economics. We need to be very careful as to how we structure the teams. So that's more like the the logistic and and tech side. On the art market, directly, we are not too impacted. What's happening is like with the rise of the interest rates, obviously, people are less willing to pay crazy prices for an artwork. Like you had a bit the same thing in the art market that you had in in tech, right? Like investors overpaying for companies, like you had collectors overpaying for artworks. You had so much money available. And so we see now that mass of money is not as available anymore. And so you see the top end of the market, getting valuations, which are still good, but not as good as it used to be. But from a transactional perspective, deals are still happening. Um, And so for us, it's still a relatively good period. Uh, I think it's been harder to deal with the art market during COVID than it is actually now. Now it's kind of back to normality to to, to a large extent.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. Um, When I look at the nature of your product, I think of as the kind of product that... I'm I'm oversimplifying here, Edward, so don't get uh, upset. And if I look at it, you are the experience that gets the thing I purchased to me more than you are in any way something that I retain after I receive my art. In other words, I received my artwork. Convelio was a bit of of an enabler, but it's not something I emotionally connect with. And so therefore, it must mean that you have the challenge of how do you showcase magic to your customer in a way where they're like, wow, that's, that's actually quite a memorable experience. So from a Product development point of view, what is it that that you would say is like the magical thing that leaves people thinking like, "Huh, this is this is actually something I want to do again uh, if I have to engage."
0: Yeah, um, it's a very good question. I think I mean our business is, is primarily B two B two C, right? So we have a lot of touch points with collectors. But in the end, we sell primarily to galleries, auction houses, outer organizations, and so on and so on. Right? If a collector does not hear about us, it means that they're happy, right? And I think it's like in a market where what we call kind of like the post-sale coordination was pretty broken, the fact that there is no problem is already pretty good. Now, the there, there are still two things where we differentiate um, quite a lot. Um, and I mean, honestly, these are the initial differentiating factors. The first one is typically if you, if you go on... On some auction websites, um, the price that will be displayed for, for shipping is like comes in- instantaneously, which was not the case before, right? So we're able to help a marketplace offer an Amazon-like checkout from a shipping perspective. And I think for that in the art market and for collectors that are used to buy in the art market, that's already quite a step forward, right? In some instances, like that goes even kind of one step further, right? So if you look at like, the server checkout, for example, and you buy something on Sardis, now you can pay, pay for both the artwork and the shipping. So you don't need to exchange emails with the poster as to managing all of the different invoices and then do two wires and two card payments. And so the integrity of our technology to streamline the experience for the clients. So I think the most important part for us is to make it as easy as possible. Where we are, I think, more memorable, because getting a price is no crazy magic. I mean, it's our, our algorithm. For us, it's magic. For them, it's like just normality, right? Because obviously, I mean, in the e commerce world, you get that every day. Um, I think where we're more memorable is more typically when we get to the communication with the collector, right? So as we organize the delivery, we have some human touch point, like manual touch points, and then we also have tracking, right? And we build the industry first end-to-end tracking. So when we arrived, there was no tracking, right? You could get tracking if you were to use like a FedEx freight, for example, for part of the value chain. But if you do what we call air cargo, so if it's something that that's pretty expensive. Then knowing when it gets picked up, when it gets packed, when it goes through customs and being able to deliver the same experience as a DHL, but from the time it gets picked up to the time it gets delivered and installed and with like having an accurate ETA, is actually something that people really enjoy. And that's where also we push our brands quite a lot. And in parallel to that, we also have a lot of communication and making sure that we have the best customer care possible, right? Like, I mean, we are we have a service business, um, which is strongly tech enabled. And so we use tech to... Make sure that we can offer the best experience possible and then on top of that we have the human touch that comes on top to make sure that we offer the best experience possible so that's where we more more memorable in
1: yeah it's funny you know like I, I think about the role startups have in creating new customer service experiences and i and i see two types of companies that end up getting created the ones that hide their customer service behind email or a contact form and those that put it up front and it, i'm not just talking about calls you know it's especially with the kind of things that you guys ship. I mean, I would expect people to be available, you know? And it's a tricky decision for startups to make because it, it taxes their team members. I know some companies that have their employees on a rota to, to mm-hmm. deal with customer service because, you know, it, it's just that taxing. So it's a tricky decision. And it sounds like because of the nature of your work, I mean, it, it is a requirement, but it is yeah. always a tricky decision for startups to make. Um, I we,
0: uh, for sure. It's a big investment, obviously, because you don't, don't automate everything. So that's an investment we make towards offering the best quality possible. But that's not something we can really compromise on in, in our industry.
1: Talking about big investments, I mean, obviously, you've raised quite a bit of money, Series B, uh, one of the largest uh, for your industry in terms of funding. But, you know, we're talking about these topics of scaling, you know, whether it be customer service and employee and, and costs associated with that, but also acquiring other companies you know, where sometimes those companies in supply chain are companies that really are best placed to be within your remit of control. Tell us a little bit about your recent acquisition and where that sits and how that's changed the landscape. Um, what, what, maybe add to that, what advice do you give to companies about acquiring other companies?
0: Um, yeah. And So I, I can give you the context and then the advice. I think the context quite simply was the market in the UK is centered around London. And so in London, a lot of our suppliers were actually our competitors because they would do kind of the whole value chain, right? They would not only do pickups and not only do trading, like they would really kind of manage the whole thing, right? And then after a while, we realized that we were bidding on the same jobs, you know, which makes no sense. Um, and so we had kind of like that thing, right? And like the, the other part was that in the UK, we started on the tier three side of the market and we wanted to go up market all the time. And so we started to look for a company that could kind of fill in these gaps, helping us manage the value chain ourselves end to end. So actually having a little bit of assets to serve London better, and making sure that the quality of these guys would be good enough that we can, you know, transport a I don't know hundred million dollar painting and that would not be a problem, right? Which is a different ballgame. game. Um, and so we shopped around, right? And after a while, we started to work with that company called Connoisseur and. I mean, from an operation perspective, the guys were like a Swiss clock and it was working super well. Everything was super organized. The guys have been doing that for the past 30 years. Obviously very different culture from ours. We are tech-enabled business, mostly young people. They are brick and mortar business. Not as young, let's put it like this. You have to kind of mix these two words together. And yeah, I think it's been a massive learning experience. I think for them, for us, Um, we've learned even more about our own jobs than we had in the past. And they learned also about new ways of working. Um, so I think it, that's the rationale behind it. It's honestly, one of the best decisions we've took since we started Convadio. It's really changed our approach to the market. It also gives us the possibility to start offering all the typology of services. And I can expand on that after. And then I think on the advice, I think, honestly, the, the first thing is if you think that the deal making is easy, just wait for integration. <laughs> it's, integration is hard it takes a lot more time than one would think. You need to be super humble in the way you approach that because obviously the company you acquire has a, I mean, can have a similar culture. They can be driven by the same KPIs, the same successes, and but they, they've had such a different culture for the past X number of years. They need to progressively be able to bring them within your own kind of remit. And that takes a while, right? And the integration, particularly in in our industry, we have to merge IT systems and make sure that our system connects to theirs and so on and so on. That that took a lot, lot longer than what we expected. And my advice to that would be like, make sure that you have, I mean, we that was a small acquisition for us. Like, in a sense, that it's it's a 16, 18 people team. People are going for like much larger integration, much larger M&As. And we still are kind of like relatively small from that perspective. But we needed to have one person in charge. That like one person in charge covers all of the topics and is able to come back to us and be like, well, we've seen that issue and that issue and so on and so on. But that comes to you back as like a really structured information and that person then dispatched within the different teams like, okay, well, product and tech, you will work on that. Operation, you will work on that. HI, you will work on that. Finance, how do you manage to bring that, all of that under one PNR? you know, like all the different kind of things. And you need to have one person that's accountable. And so, yeah, I think the advice is get ready for integration. Make sure that someone has all the accountability in the world to do the integration work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing that, that you brought up that, that sort of caught my attention is the cultural alignment issue, right? Because you were joking when you talked about age, but, you know, a 30-year-old company versus a six-year-old company and, and getting people to respect you and feel like you have their best interests in mind is not an easy task.
0: It, it can be very tough. In the beginning, it was more, what was I think was really difficult was more ways of working, right? We use very different tools from Slack to Miro to whatever software you can use within your company to manage your business. I think they would essentially not think they ever heard of, right? And so how do you bring them into these tools? So I think that's a tricky one. Obviously, age plays a little bit because we grew up with like a smartphone in our hand, and that's a lot easier for the younger generation. Now, that being said, what you should look for is people that are not afraid of change. And that's what we found with the founders of Conversa. They are super willing to learn, super humble in, in the approach that they take. And and you know I think in the end, we managed to pull that through. Obviously, there is still a little bit of work that needs to be done, but we mostly did all of the integration by now. And that happened because they were willing to listen. We were willing to listen and we wanted to work in the same direction. And overall, it's a partnership and you just need to make sure that you understand who you're getting in bed with. And that's something that's quite important because obviously you want ideally the founders to stick around for an extended period of time. So they can help you drive the business as well. I mean, these guys have created a successful business. We, we want them to stick around.
1: Fair enough. All right. Well, the last question I have for you is probably the, the, the most fun and the most obvious, which is you come from tech. You had your background in, in Rocket Internet, but we're talking about art. I don't even know if you like art. I mean, I don't know if you like the art scene. I don't know if you like artists. So do you like art? And what is the most regrettable art decision you've ever made?
0: And um, so I, I obviously I, I do love art. I grew to like art, right? I think we got into that market out of frustration when we were like, I, I mean, we have to fix that thing, you know, very much a startup culture approach. But then you, you go to these viewings all the time. You go to, I don't know, Sardomies, Christie's, whatever exhibition that they would show. I and, mean, you know, at some point it would be it would like either you're insensitive, uh, <laughs> I think, and you cannot like it, but I think if you keep seeing it, it's amazing, right? Like it's a uh, it's like human history that is just sitting in front of you. And, you know, when we go to the warehouse in London and you see like a Picasso that passes by or Botticelli or like this kind of art, like this is true history, right? And, and obviously that goes on you quite a lot. And so, yeah, I think I won't say that I understand it as well as people that are working within the gallery, because I don't think I can get to that level and I don't have the time to do that, but I, I really very much enjoy it. And I think kind of the, the most regrettable decision I've made. Yeah. Uh, but I think I've seen a couple of artists that in their early days that were relatively affordable back then. So like, there are three that I really like, which I did not buy and I, I haven't done it. And I'm actually going to a viewing about one of them next week. So like, you had Shoshi Shoshibuya and de Wiley, and which I like three of my favorite artists and they were relatively affordable a couple of years ago um and i did not buy them i was like yeah you know at some point i will do that i'm not sure i want to invest my money in them just just now i mean obviously we were not paying ourselves a lot and i'm like yeah damn that was very stupid i should have made that investment you know it's like things the same thing as with angel investing you're like yeah whatever we'll do the next round and then you realize wow that was dumb like i knew these guys were good I, why why didn't I put money in the, in the first round? No, so I think it's quite quite similar to that four more that you can get when when you invest I suppose.
1: There you go, guys. Art is just like angel investing. Exactly, you get the same regrets and maybe the same returns. Who knows? Um, Edward, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Learned quite a bit about a sector that I actually know very little about. But I'm gonna go out there and start looking, and maybe make some not so regrettable decisions.
0: Thank so with
1: guys, until next
0: time. Thank you. Bye-bye.